Let's turn together in the Bible to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. We're going to read from verse 19 to verse 34. This is the testimony of John when the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. They asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. Then they said to him, Who are you? So that we may give an answer to those who sent us, What do you say about yourself? He said, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him and said to him, Why then are you baptizing if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, saying, I baptize in water. But among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day... He saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. John testified, saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you for who you are, the God of light, and for bringing light to us into the darkness. Thank you that your light shines. And Lord, I pray this morning as we contemplate this wonderful passage that you would help us to see that light and that you would open up our hearts, open up our ears, open up our eyes by your Holy Spirit and help us to receive your truth and to understand what we read. And Lord, I pray that you would point once again our minds, our eyes, our hearts to your Son, Jesus Christ, and who he is. And we pray that you'd be honored and glorified by the preaching of your word and by the hearing of your word. Lord, may this be an act of worship to you, that your word is being preached and being heard. Help us to see that we worship you by hearing your word with reverence. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Like all the other gospels, The fourth gospel formally begins with an examination of John the Baptist, who was the precursor and herald 
to the Lord Jesus Christ. Marcus Dodds, the commentator, writes, The witness or testimony of John is placed first, not because it was that which first influenced the evangelist himself. Now, John the Apostle, who writes this, was influenced by John's witness, wasn't he? But John's witness is not placed first only because it was that which first influenced the evangelist himself, nor only because chronologically it came first, but because the Baptist was commissioned to be the herald of the Messiah. The scriptures of the prophets prophesy not only the coming of the Messiah, but the coming of a precursor and a herald to the Messiah, right? Particularly in the book of Isaiah and the book of Malachi. So we know the prophets predict Jesus' coming, but they also predict one who would come before him to prepare his way, to herald him, to usher in his arrival and introduce his presence. St. Augustine writes, To the prophets who went before, it was granted to predict the coming of Christ. But to this man to point him out with the finger. Okay, that's amazing, isn't it? So you've got this long line of prophets in history who are pointing to Jesus Christ with their pen. And here's John now right there with Jesus, okay? He's right there and he's saying, this is the Messiah. This is the one. And so it was. Now I'm not making this up. About 29 AD in history, this is something that historians recognize. You don't have to be a Christian. Two men appeared in Israel about 29 AD. First, this man named John, and then this man named Jesus immediately after him. After centuries of religious quiet, and a religious law in Israel. That is, before John the Baptist and Jesus showed up on the scene, there was about four centuries of not too much religious stuff going on. Lots of political stuff going on, but there was a religious law. And then John, this man, shows up as a blazing torch in Israel, and then Jesus after him as a blazing sun, and then, bam, the Christian church begins. Within 10 years, the Christian church is a worldwide movement. Within 300 years, the Roman Empire doesn't know what to do with it, so it becomes Christian. (laughs) Within 2,000 years, the Christian church is still going strong. There was a veritable, spiritual, big bang in the first century, brothers and sisters. Okay, Nothing's going on. John shows up. Jesus shows up. Bam! Christianity. Where did this huge thing begin? Where does the, if we trace the fuse of this explosion and we go back, where did it all start? And the Bible tells us that the spiritual Big Bang began, it all began with the appearance of John the Baptist. Look at verse 6 of chapter 1. There, was a man, there came a man sent from God whose name was John. John was not a maverick. He was not a self-made prophet. He didn't take it upon himself to show up and get the ball rolling. Okay? Lots of people did stuff like that and it came to nothing. But there was a man who was sent from God 
and his name was John. And in verse 7, he came as a witness to the light. He came as a witness to the truth of God. That's what John was doing. He came as a witness to the truth of God, verse 7, so that what? What is the goal here? He's proclaiming the truth of God so that all men might what? Believe. That's what he wants. That's what he was sent for. So that all might believe. This morning we're going to talk about John the Baptist and particularly this witness to the light. This witness that is what John the Apostle is concerned with. And in the passage that we read, verse 19 to 34, John unpacks and expands upon the witness of John. Remember how I said everything in the prologue is expanded upon in the gospel? So he says here, John came as a witness to the light, and now in verse 19 to 34, he's unpacking this witness. If we were to ask, what is the relevance of John the Baptist for the 21st century? What is his value for us? The answer would be the very same value he was in the first century. Okay? He came in the first century as a witness, and he remains a witness, because he wasn't just a witness for that time only, but for all time. And his voice is still heard. We're talking about it right now in the 21st century. And so his value for us today is the same. And we can tune our ears to hear his voice and to listen to his witness and to believe. Now the evangelist, John the Apostle, structures this passage that we read in three sections. And so I'm going to follow that order this morning. We're going to talk about three things following the three sections. First of all, when we look at the witness of John, we're going to look at what John the Baptist testified or witnessed concerning himself. Secondly, we're going to see what John the Baptist testified about his baptism. And thirdly, what John the Baptist testified or witnessed concerning Jesus. So first, what he witnessed concerning himself, what he witnessed concerning his baptism, and what he witnessed concerning Jesus. So first, what John the Baptist testified about himself. Now let's look at verse 19 together. This is the testimony of John when the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? Now, we need to notice, we need to pause here and take note of something that the evangelist doesn't detail because the evangelist assumes that we all know this. We need to note the circumstances of this story. Brothers and sisters, you will not personally understand or grasp or get the significance of John the Baptist unless you grasp and understand that John the Baptist was hugely popular in his day, okay? He was not some unknown, obscure, have you heard about John the Baptist? John Baptist who, what? Everybody knew who John the Baptist was in the first century when he began to preach in the wilderness, okay? Hugely popular. He was a public sensation. This isn't something that only, you know, we know because of the Bible, merely. You can see it in the Bible, But it's interesting that there was a historian in the first century, not a Christian, he was Jewish, named Josephus. He published a massive work called The Antiquities of the Jews in the first century. 
and he himself writes about the popularity of John the Baptist. And he says, about this time when Herod suffered a military defeat, it was around this time, uh, there was a man named John the Baptist, and Josephus says that he held great influence over many people, so much so that people were ready to do whatever he advised. You pick that up in the Bible, don't you? People are coming to him, what do we do, what do we do? And he's telling them to do things. So he was hugely popular, and we see this in the Gospels as well. Josephus also says that it was a common opinion in Israel that Herod suffered that devastating military defeat, which is a story not in the Bible, as a judgment for putting John to death. So, you know, Herod, because you killed John, that's why your army was defeated. That's what the, that was the public idea in the first century. That shows you how significant John was in people's minds. Now, from verse 19, we can see how popular John was because Jerusalem sent a delegation to see who John was, okay? Now, I myself am an open-air preacher, okay? I preach on the campus at USU, and I lift up my voice and cry out, and I say, you need to turn to the Lord and, you know, prepare his way and believe on him, and Jesus is the Son of God. But the Vatican has never sent me a delegation finding out, who are you? Okay. <laughs> right? <laughs> Temple Square has not, sent me a delegation, has not sent a delegation saying, who are you? Right? I'm off the radar. Not so John the Baptist. Okay? That's the kind of character he was and public figure he was, that they sent a delegation to find out who he was. We also see in the Gospels that John didn't only get religious interests, but also secular and political interests because Herod arrests him. Herod's worried about his preaching, right? Because he's calling out Herod for his sins, and he doesn't like that. And so he arrests John, and Josephus talks about how Herod arrested John as well. So both John the Baptist and Jesus were immensely popular and well-known in Acts 26, 26, when Paul's talking to King, King Agrippa, a high official, he says, hey, I'm not telling you anything you don't know. These things were not done in a corner, right? He says, you know all about this. You know about Jesus. You know about John. You know he was crucified by Pilate. You know he was popular. You know. This is such an important fact for many reasons. One of the reasons why this is an important fact is that it confirms the trustworthiness of the Bible, to, to recognize how popular Jesus and John were. And when you realize that the Gospels and the letters in the New Testament were written in the first century, some of them were written very close to when Jesus himself was here. And they're talking about Jesus, and they're saying he did this, he did that. Huge crowds followed him. And they published this in the first century. And if it was not so, if Jesus was not popular, if John was not well-known, then those who were the enemies of Christianity, and there was lots of them, could have said, you're making this all up. There were no crowds. He was not known. We don't know who you're talking about. But they didn't, you know. They didn't say you're lying. They said, well, we just don't believe your interpretation of those facts. But the facts couldn't be denied. Why was John so popular? Well, it was clear that he was a prophet, And we must remember, as I've said, no prophet had arisen for centuries 
And then we read in the Bible that at that time in the first century, like the days of old, Luke 3, 2 tells us, the word of the Lord came to John. The word of the Lord came to John. That, that sounds like Jeremiah or Isaiah or Ezekiel, doesn't it? And that hadn't happened for centuries. And all of a sudden, the word of the Lord comes to John. And here was John in camel's hair, it tells us, and a leather belt. That is the spitting image of Elijah. That is exactly what Elijah's description is in the Old Testament. So here's centuries of no prophet, and then all of a sudden you've got this guy who looks exactly like Elijah. He's standing there, and he's preaching boldly, Thus saith the Lord. And you must also remember that at this time, this time when John arrived was the conclusion of Daniel's prophesied 69 weeks until the Messiah would arrive. You remember in the book of Daniel when we studied that, that Daniel gets this vision and, the, and an angel tells him that from the rebuilding of Jerusalem unto the Messiah, there'd be 483 years. That's one of the most amazing prophecies in the Old Testament. And so it was that time. The 483 years were up. And there was a huge expectation that the Messiah was about to arrive. D.A. Carson comments, first century Palestine was rife with messianic expectations. And so John shows up, everybody's interested. In fact, they thought he was the Messiah. Turn to Luke chapter 3, verse 15. Luke chapter 3. They thought he might be the Messiah. And this is a a summary statement of how people were thinking at that time. Luke 3.15. Now, while the people were in a state of expectation, it was a buzz of expectation, and all were wondering in their hearts about John as to whether he was the Christ. Okay? Now, it was actually the responsibility of the Sanhedrin, which is the religious supreme court in Israel at the time, it was actually their responsibility to find out whether someone was a prophet or not, whether someone was the Christ or not. That was their responsibility. So they sent the delegation to John, and it would have been irresponsible of them not to do that. And so we get, we pick up where we, where we left off in John 1, verse 20. In light of all that we've said, John's answer is amazing, if you think about it. He had all the people wrapped around his finger. He had the Sanhedrin come from Jerusalem asking him who he is, okay? And if John was a charlatan, like many are, he could have easily said, yeah, I'm the Christ, and he would have had a huge following, But John was no charlatan. John had a holy estimate of the office of the Messiah, and he would not peddle with holy things. Now, verse 20 is interesting, isn't it? The way that the evangelist phrases this. John makes a negative statement, I am not the Christ. But the way that the evangelist introduces that that statement, he introduces it as witness. As if it was a positive statement. Look, And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed. So it's like, he's going to make a positive statement here. I'm not the Christ. 
Now that's really interesting because what John the Apostle is telling us is that John the Baptist's answer here is part of his witness. Him denying he's the Messiah is a part of his witness. Imagine if John had claimed the Messiahship. Could he have been the witness? Could he have been the herald? Could he have been the precursor? Could he have been the voice? He could no more testify of Jesus had he done that. It was essential to his witness of Christ that he denied that he was the Messiah. If John had exalted himself, brothers and sisters, he could not have exalted Jesus. Now there's a lesson there for us, isn't there? Part of our witness includes what we deny about ourselves. Amen? Part of our witness includes what we say we're not, right? And one of the things we say we're not is we say we are not righteous. That's something that the world says they are. The world says, I am a good person, I am righteous, I am good in God's sight. If we as Christians did not deny our own righteousness, we could not be either, we could neither be witnesses of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? For what was the point of Jesus' coming? If any of us took took his place and said, I'm the Messiah, or exalted ourselves, we could never again, or we could not, by doing that, witness to the Lord. So we need to consider what we deny also, uh, and not only what we affirm. You know, in verse 21, when he says he's not the Christ, he denies that. They ask him, well, what then? Are you Elijah? Look at you. You sure look like Elijah. Are you the prophet? In Deuteronomy chapter 18, Moses prophesied that God would raise up a prophet just like him. And we know in the New Testament that that prophecy is fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus is the prophet. It seems here that these, this delegation, the, the, the Jews didn't, they, they didn't seem to know that the prophet was the same as the Messiah. But John denies all these things. No, I'm not Elijah. And no, I'm not the prophet, because I'm not the Messiah. Now here's a question that is asked. How is John not Elijah when Jesus said that he was? Right? You, got, you remember when Jesus says that he's Elijah? Turn to Matthew chapter 11. This is actually a question that's been raised ever since Christians have read the Gospels. You can, the earliest commentators talk about this question. Matthew chapter 11, verse 7. Matthew 11, verse 7. And I'll just read this passage because it's Jesus' own thoughts on John. In Matthew 11, verse 7, he says, "As, As these men were going away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did, you, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? Jesus dismisses that as a joke. What did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until, the king, until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent men take it by force. 
For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So here's this question. Do we have a contradiction here where Jesus says, He is Elijah. And John, when asked, Are you Elijah? He says, No. Now there are two common answers to this question that are usually given. Here's the first one. The first is that John really didn't know that he was Elijah and that Jesus is the one who knew that he was Elijah. So when John said, I'm not Elijah, he, just, he said honestly, no, because he didn't know that he was Elijah. And Jesus says he was. And those who say that say, that's okay. He doesn't need to know he's Elijah to be Elijah. And maybe it's even more fitting that he doesn't know he's Elijah so he can just humbly do his thing and fulfill his mission. The second answer that's given to this question is that John was denying what the delegation meant when they asked him whether he was Elijah. Because in their mind, they thought that Elijah, the person, would actually come. That when Elijah comes and prepares the way for the Messiah, it would not be someone else, but it would actually be Elijah. And so they're coming and saying, are you Elijah? I mean, we weren't there back in the day to know what he looked like, except that he wore your clothes, right? So are you him? And when John says no, he's simply denying the idea that he is Elijah who's come out of heaven. But what Jesus is saying is that John is the Elijah that's prophesied in the scriptures who was to come. And the true meaning of this is that, is that found in Luke chapter 1, verse 17. The angel tells John's father that the son that is going to be born will come in this, will be the forerunner of the Messiah in the spirit and the power of Elijah. And so the idea is, no, he's not Elijah, but he's in the spirit and, the, and power of Elijah. Like Elisha, Elijah's uh, successor, had the mantle of Elijah come upon him and the spirit of Elijah come upon him. So in some sense, he was like Elijah. But he wasn't actually the person Elijah. I'm inclined to believe the second, although both of these are acceptable answers. I'm inclined to believe the second answer because John seemed to know who he was. He says, I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness, preparing the way for the Lord, which is the role of Elijah. So it seemed like John knew who he was And therefore, I'm inclined to think that the second answer is best. Which raises the question, besides the appearance of John, how was John like Elijah? Because one thing the New Testament tells us is that John did no miracles. And Elijah is known for the many wondrous miracles that God did through him. So if John came in the spirit and the power of Elijah, how was he like Elijah? And here's my stab at what the spirit and power of Elijah means. The spirit of Elijah is the spirit of uncompromising devotion to God in an age of apostasy. That is, zeal for God and God's people to bring them back to the true ways of God. And if you think about it, that's exactly what Elijah was doing, right? In a time of apostasy, when Israel was worshiping Baal. They were turning away from God. John comes along with full conviction, full devotion to God, takes his stand in an uncompromising way, 
and calls the nation back to the truth, doesn't he? Calls them away from the worship of idols to the worship of the one true God. And not that Elijah is the only one who is like that. I think Elijah is representative of all the prophets who went before him and who came after him. And many have since come after John the Baptist like that, in the spirit and power of Elijah, in the sense, if this is what it means, of uncompromising devotion in an age of apostasy. I'm sure we could all put forth candidates. But nonetheless, John, the precursor and herald of the Messiah, would have that spirit, which is interesting because it seems to say something important. That immediately prior to the coming of the Messiah, okay, to usher in the Messiah, we're going to need someone like Elijah because the times are going to be pretty bad and idolatry is going to be pretty rampant and Israel will not be worshiping the Lord. Now that's, you know, you want to know what's interesting about that? It's, that's contrary to the predominant view in Judaism today and then, which was that if we get our act together, okay, if we turn to God, if we do all the righteous things we're supposed to do and stop being idolaters and worship the one true God, then the Messiah is going to come. But the Bible predicts that Elijah must come and usher in the Messiah, which means that he'll come in an age of apostasy, and that's exactly what he did. In John's day, Israel was filled with apostasy, and John's voice shook the establishment. He didn't come along and confirm the establishment. He didn't come along and say, everything's good, everything's fine, follow your leaders, they won't lead you astray. He didn't do that, did he? But he came along and challenged them. His voice sounded a trumpet, an alarm. The nation of Israel is not worshiping God. And that was a shock because they would have said, what do you mean, we're not like our fathers, right? That's the one thing they kept telling Jesus. We're not like our fathers, We're not like our idolatrous past. And Jesus and John continue to affirm, no, you're not actually. You're worse. (laughs) You're worse. You're worse because while they didn't worship God and knew it, you don't worship God and you don't know it. You're in a delusion. You think you're worshiping God when you're not. You think you're honoring him, but you're not. And the very proof that you don't honor God is that you don't receive our witness of the truth of God the truth of righteousness, the truth of God's law, of his standard, which shows that we're all guilty. And you all think you're acceptable by your obedience. And so John stood in the first century, ushering in the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah, uncompromising devotion to God in an age of apostasy. He was a man who clearly knew who he was by his answer who he wasn't, and what he was doing. And I pray that likewise we too as the Church of Christ would know who we are and would know what we are doing and would stand in our day in the spirit and power of Elijah, uncompromising devotion to God and calling people to his truth. May God enable us to do that. So what is John's witness concerning himself? He's not the Christ. He's not actually Elijah. He's not the prophet, but he's the herald of the Christ in the spirit of Elijah, and he is a clear and unmistakable sign of the Messiah's imminent appearance in the first century. Secondly, what did John 
testify about his baptism. Let's go back to John chapter 1. What did John testify about his baptism? And let's look at verse 24 and 25. I find the response of the delegation fascinating. Now they, in verse 24 it says, Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him and said to him, Why then are you baptizing if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I think that's such an interesting question. Was his answer not sufficient to justify his practice of baptism to them? He says he's he's the voice of one crying in the wilderness as Isaiah prophesied. And was that not good enough for them? Oh, so I guess you're nobody important, right? (laughs) Because if you're not the Christ and if you're not Elijah, what are you baptizing for? Colin Cruz, the commenter, says that perhaps their question simply reflects an attitude that if John did not claim to be a figure of importance, or at least eschatological importance in their view, he had no business baptizing people. So they're like, what are you baptizing people for if you're not the Messiah or his, for, or his forerunner? Because they seem to miss that he was. They missed his point. Or perhaps their question is sincere. But it's a fascinating question, as we'll see. In reply, verse 26, John says, I baptize in water. Now we need to see something very important and significant here. The Jews believed that when the Messiah came and his forerunner, Elijah and the Messiah, their view was Elijah and the Messiah would come. And that one of the things the Messiah would do is he would cleanse and purify Israel. He would cleanse and purify Israel. He'd bring in righteousness and cleanse and purify Israel. And they were right. That is what the Messiah would do. And so they're asking John, but if you're not Christ and if you're not Elijah, why are you trying to purify Israel? That's the question. Because if you were the Christ, we could understand why you're calling people to be purified and cleansed and to turn from their sins. And John's answer is this. My baptism isn't trying to purify Israel. There's a sense when he says, I baptize with water. There's a dismissive sense here. I'm just baptizing in water. My baptism isn't an end in itself. I'm not the Messiah and the Christ who's come and say, okay, I'm here now. Everybody come and get cleansed right here and be purified. My baptism is not the end in itself, but it is simply a symbol of the true cleansing to come in Christ when he comes. After me, all the other Gospels add this to this statement. And John does say it in a few verses later. After me comes one who I am not worthy to untie the sandals of. He will baptize in the Holy Spirit. That is, his will be the real cleansing. His will be the, you know, you're looking for the Christ to come and cleanse Israel. He is the one who's going to do that. I'm just baptizing in water. And so you're missing the point here of what I'm doing. A.T. Robertson says, John was not a ceremonialist. The spiritual element was the main thing in his nature. Robertson points out that there's a parallel when we call John, John the Baptist. 
because we can put all the emphasis upon baptism. And it's okay to call him John the Baptist, but don't miss the fact that John, in a sense, steps back from his water and he says, I baptize you with water, but one's coming after me. He's going to baptize you in the Holy Spirit. And John was not a ceremonialist. He was not a ritualist. He did not believe, nor do we believe, that water takes away sins at all, that water cleanses us, that water purifies us. Elsewhere, John it is said that when he baptized people, he called them to confess their sins and believe in the one who was to come, meaning that the baptism that he was doing was a, a, was a symbolic act pointing to the fact that we need to be cleansed from our sins and we shall be cleansed from our sins by the one who is going to come and really baptize us in the Holy Spirit. And who is going to do that? John says this remarkable thing in verse 26. One who stands among you, whom you do not know. Many scholars think it's entirely probable that Jesus was actually standing in the crowd that day among them when he was having this exchange. He was there, and John could see him. And he's like, there is one who is standing here right now. And John, if he had said in verse 27... If he had said, I am only worthy to untie his sandals, he would have been saying more than what um, people in his day would, would think is acceptable to do. That would have been humble for him to say, I'm only worthy to untie his sandals. Because in, because in his day, um, it was the servants who would untie the sandals. There's even a saying there was a saying that's recorded in the writings of the Jews at that time that a disciple is to serve his master in everything except for untying his sandals because that's something that only the servants should do. So if John had said, I'm only worthy to untie his sandals, he would have said something extremely humble. He says, I'm not even worthy to untie this man's sandals. I'm not even worthy to be a servant to him. I can't be even his servant. I wonder if we have that attitude as well with the Lord. Now, of course, the amazing thing is that he, call, he calls us up and makes us his, his friends. He makes us co-heirs with him. And that should blow our mind when we consider that apart from Christ, we're not worthy to be his servant. Okay. John's conception and grasp of Jesus, the Messiah, was extremely exalted. So what is his view of his baptism? It is, don't look at what I'm doing and think that I'm trying to cleanse Israel as the Messiah or Elijah. I'm pointing to the one who is to come, who's going to do the real cleansing. I'm simply baptizing in water. The greater one is coming who will do the real cleansing. And lastly, what did John testify about Jesus? And we come to the last section here in verse 29. Now, we see that his conception of Jesus was extremely high. Okay? John had a high view of Jesus. And John also testified that Jesus was there in the first century. And not only in his century, but in his day. Not only just in his day, but in his crowd. He's here. John is testifying these things of Jesus. But if we miss this, we miss it all. 
if we have the loftiest view of Jesus and believe that he came in the first century, we miss it all if we miss this testimony of Jesus. In verse 29, John gives us the greatest and most incisive testimony about Jesus. And he voices this testimony on his own initiative when he sees Jesus coming to him. This is not a response to any question. This is not something that incidentally arises in the course of a conversation he's having with someone. He sees Jesus and he proclaims. It's a proclamation. And this is John's summary explanation of the person and the work of the Messiah. His first real description of him in the Gospel of John. And he says in verse 29, the next day he saw Jesus coming to him and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. My friend, if you miss this, you miss it all. Behold, he points the finger like Augustine said. All the prophets prophesied before and now John's right there pointing the finger and he's proclaiming, Behold, not merely the Messiah, the exalted one, but the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You, you want to talk to me about cleansing of Israel? There he is. And it should be obvious from this passage, my friends, that John never thought that his baptism in water took away sins. Right? I mean, we should just safely banish that from our mind forever. That water and ritual does not take away sins. And confession of sin doesn't take away sins. Nor amendment of life takes away sins. He's telling us here what takes away sins. So don't come and give some other thing that takes away sins. It is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And this can only mean one thing in the context of the Bible. Because there is only one way that a lamb can take away sin. Because you might ask, how does a lamb take away sin? Well, in the context of the Bible, there's only one way. And you, you know what that way is if you're a Bible reader. It is the way of substitutionary sacrifice. The Messiah did indeed come to purify Israel. And we see here in this text, not only Israel, but the whole world as well. And not by water, not by external baptism, nor by confession and amendment of life did the Messiah come into the world to take away sins. But by this and this way only, to take away sins as the Lamb who comes into the world to substitute himself in our place, to have, as the prophet Isaiah tells us, our sins laid upon him. And by having our sins put upon the the sacrificial lamb of Jesus, by him bearing our sins in our place, dying for them, this is the way that he removes our sins. By his death, by his blood, by the blood of the lamb, our sins are taken away. Why this way, one might ask? Why are sins taken away by the Lamb of God? 
Why are sins taken away by blood? Why are sins taken away by sacrifice? Aren't those primitive, ancient, barbaric concepts that we in the 21st century have evolved in our mentality, in our wisdom? Haven't we gotten away from that sick, disgusting idea that we need to sacrifice things or something needs to be sacrificed in order for our sins to be taken away? What is the answer of the Bible? Oh, yes, that is the case. We are more sophisticated than that, than that, aren't we? And human beings do evolve and get more knowledgeable and more wise and more able to amend themselves as time goes on, so we don't need any lamb taking away our sins anymore. No, that is not what the Bible says. Because the basis for the need of blood and sacrifice is not because we just weren't evolved enough. The basis of the need for the bloody sacrifice is the nature of God and the character of God. Amen? It's because God hates sin and must avenge himself upon sinners, which is why there needs to be a bloody sacrifice. It's not our ignorance. It's God's righteous character. Because we see in the Bible, and God does not change, God is a God of moral rectitude. Moral rectitude. He loves righteousness and hates iniquity. And he is a just judge. And as a just judge, he distributes to all what is their due. He loves righteousness. He loves moral rectitude. And he distributes to all what is their due. In the, and what is the due of sin? What is due to those who sin? The Bible says death. Punishment. I'm proclaiming to you today in the 21st century that your sins deserve death and punishment because God is a God of moral rectitude and righteousness and he's a just judge. I'm reminding you of the old-fashioned truth that God is a righteous and just God and he distributes what is due and what is due to us is death for our sins. The basis of this need is in the character and the nature of God, my friends. But if that was all there is to God, justice, well then we'd have no hope, would we? If that was all there was about the nature and the character of God, justice, if that's all I could proclaim in the 21st century, we wouldn't even be here. If there was no rainbow in the sky based upon God's unmerited grace, none of us would be here today, okay? Because God put a rainbow in the sky after he just destroyed everybody except one family whom he allowed to live because of his unmerited grace. God puts a rainbow in the sky, not because we deserved it, but because of his unmerited grace. He says, I'm not going to do that again. I'm testifying to you of, that there is more to me than justice, that I care about humanity, even though they deserve death. I'm not only a God of justice, but of love. I'm not only a God of justice, but of mercy, but of grace, but of compassion for wicked people, for the very ones who deserve death. I am a God of love. This is not sentimental love, brothers and sisters. There's nothing sentimental in the Bible about this love. It's not just God has nice feelings about us. God chooses out of his unmerited grace and out of his nature to care for us. It 
It's realistic love. They need help. And John 3.16 famously states that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And here we see what it means to give the, the only begotten son. It says in John chapter 1, verse 29, that the giving of the son is the giving of the lamb of God. And God gave his son to be the lamb. That was the purpose of his coming. John heralds this because that is the only way that we can be saved. There is no other way for you and me to be saved than through this lamb who dies on the cross for our sins in our place. There's no other way. God can't put aside his justice. We can't amend our lives. We deserve death. That's it. And if it's not for the sacrifice of Jesus, there's no other way. God knows this. God sends the lamb. And Jesus Christ, we proclaim it today in the 21st century, just like they proclaimed it in the first century. He died on the cross. That's a historical fact nobody disagrees with. But we understand what it means. He died on the cross and received in himself what was due us. What was due us. The wrath of God. The punishment for our sins. He received it on the cross. That's what he was doing there, the Bible tells us. And after three days of being laid in the tomb, he rose from the dead because God accepted his sacrifice and he's alive. And by virtue of his finished work, he removes the sins of all who believe in him. And if you believe in him, my brothers and sisters, all your sins are taken away. Okay? Because he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So he did it if you believe in him. It's gone. But you say, but Eli, but Eli, I still feel like I'm a sinner. I still notice myself sinning. Yes, me too. <laughs> but my sins are not taken away by what I do. My sins are taken away by what he has done when he gave himself in my place on that cross. And so who gets the glory? The lamb. As we see in the book of Revelation, he gets the glory. He shall indeed purify his people. In fact, he's doing it this day. And he will continue to do it as people believe in him. This is his spiritual baptism. As we are baptized into his finished work. In closing this morning, I'd like to talk about one final testimony that John gives of Jesus in this passage. We've seen that John has testified that he is the precursor and the herald of the Messiah. The Messiah is right at the door. And we've seen he's also testified of his own baptism, that his baptism is not the real cleansing, but the cleansing of the Lamb who is to come is the real cleansing. And John now gives us one final testimony of how he knew that Jesus was the Messiah and the Lamb. Okay, Because he's proclaiming this particular Jesus is the Lamb. And John tells us how he knows that Jesus is the Lamb. How do we know John's not mistaken? He's not pointing to the wrong guy. 
And John tells us in this text, in verse 33, I did not recognize him, but God who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. So we're stepping into history again. And John is telling us, God, when he sent me and his word came to me, told me how I would recognize who the Messiah is. The one upon whom the Spirit descends and remains upon, that is the one who is the Messiah who baptizes with this cleansing Holy Spirit. And you'll remember, John doesn't record it here, although he does tell us he saw it. In the other Gospels, when Jesus was baptized by John, it says the heavens opened, the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus like a dove, and a voice came out of heaven and said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So God says, This is my beloved Son, I am pleased. With him. There are so many allusions in that one scene to the prophecies in the Old Testament of the Messiah being anointed by God to come and do his saving work and to bring in righteousness. In Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, it says, the, speaking of the Messiah, the Spirit of God will rest upon him. This is what I believe, I believe is the allusion to the dove. Because, you know, if you go in the Old Testament, you're not going to find much about a dove. Yeah, Noah sent out a dove, and does that really... Maybe, there's, you know, it's hard to see how the dove is connected with that. I don't think that probably by reading the Old Testament we would have expected the Holy Spirit to come down on Jesus like a dove. Except that in Isaiah 11, verse 2, there's this interesting statement that the Spirit of the Lord would rest upon him. And that word rest could be used, and it is used in the Bible sometimes, of a bird resting upon something, coming down upon something. In Isaiah 42, verse 1, God says this, of the Messiah, He is my chosen one, my soul delights in Him. I have put my spirit upon Him. And so there at the baptism, God says, I delight in this one, and I have put my spirit upon Him. In Isaiah 61, the prophet, speaking of the Messiah, says, The Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. And, has it, and the Messiah himself is speaking, The Spirit has anointed me to proclaim good news. In all of these different verses where it talks about the Spirit coming upon the Messiah, if you read on in those texts, the Spirit comes upon the Messiah to perform his saving work for his people, and to bring in righteousness. Every passage goes on to say, and this Messiah will come and do justice and righteousness and perform righteousness for the people and establish it. And as John Calvin comments, Jesus did not receive the Spirit only for himself, but for his people. There dwells in him an abundance of all gifts, of which we are empty and destitute. He was anointed by the Spirit for our sakes, my friends. So he could do his saving work and cleanse us and provide for us what we couldn't provide ourselves. One final question. How did John not know that Jesus was the Messiah before this incident? 
Now, we've got to remember, John and Jesus were, they certainly knew each other growing up. They were cousins. They were the same age, and therefore they certainly would have grown up together, playing together, doing things together, conversing together. And John must have known something was different about Jesus, right? Man, when we play, he never gets angry, right? (laughs) Something's unique about him. He's not like my other cousins. More odd, didn't John know about the virgin birth? As his cousin, wouldn't he have known about that? Wouldn't he have known about the story of how he himself leapt in the womb when Mary came to Elizabeth and they were both pregnant? Wouldn't Elizabeth have said, you know, John, when you were in the womb, Mary came and you leapt in the womb? So, you know, I'm just, I'm asking the question here, how did John not recognize Jesus? He says here, I did not know him. That's perhaps a better translation than recognize in the Greek. I did not know him. He's not saying I didn't know who Jesus was. I knew Jesus. I didn't know he was the Messiah. How did you not know, John? I believe the puzzle is solved thus. The text does say that John did not know that Jesus was the Messiah. But I don't think that that excludes the idea that John suspected that Jesus was the Messiah all along. And yet we still need to ask, well, if he suspected he was the Messiah, with all these signs and these suspicions, what prevented him from then just knowing? And I say all this, it might seem to not be an important detail, but I think it is a crucially important detail because it tells us something about the character of John and his devotion to God. That what gave him reserve, okay, what made him not say Jesus is the Messiah before this incident is simply the fact that when the word of the Lord came to him, the word of the Lord said, the one whom the Spirit descends is the one who is the Messiah who baptized in the Holy Spirit. And John was a man who took the word of God very seriously. And he said, okay, I suspect Jesus is the Messiah. I've suspected it all along. But if you tell me that it's the one upon the Spirit descends, then I, I don't know until the Spirit descends. And what this shows is John's absolute fidelity to the word of God, not to his feelings, not to his suspicions. He submitted all of that to the word of God. So finally, when John does see Jesus come and he's baptized and the Spirit descends upon him. He says, now I know that you are the Messiah. It was as I suspected all along. But this is an example for all of us. We are not to go by our feelings, or by our ideas, or by our suspicions, but we're to go by the Word of God. And God has spoken to us through the scriptures. How much do we value this? How seriously do we take it? Or do we dismiss the word for, yeah, this is how I think it is. I'm going to take a guess here. But he would not proclaim who the Messiah was until he followed God's instructions and 
it was, God's word was fulfilled to the very T. Thus the witness of John the Baptist, the beginning of the Big Bang, the spiritual Big Bang. He testified of himself, I am not the Christ. He did not exalt himself so that he might exalt the Messiah. He testified of his baptism. I baptize in water, but one is coming after me. who will re- He will do the real baptism. And he testified of Jesus. Not only that Jesus was highly exalted, not only was Jesus there, but that Jesus is the Messiah and he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. May we seriously consider his testimony and may we believe his light because his witness has the same value today as it did in the first century. May we believe that we might be the children of light. Let's pray. Please stand with me. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that you have gifted us with your word. You have brought light into our darkness. We thank you for the testimony of the prophets, and in particular this morning, we thank you for the testimony of the man you sent, John the Baptist, to herald and to point to Jesus. May we hear his testimony afresh today. Lord, for those who are not believers, we pray that they would see their sinfulness, they, they would see the, the need for the Lamb who came into the world to die for their sins, that they would see the, impetus, the impotency of self-amendment and of anything else besides the Lamb to take away our sins. Thank you so much for the Lamb of God and his blood that was shed to take away our sins. Lord, I also pray that we as your people would stand in our own age, as John the Baptist did, and that you would give us the spirit of Elijah, uncompromising devotion, and that we would proclaim your word and your truth to those even who despise and hate it. And Lord, we know that you love this world. Thank you for your love. So brilliantly revealed in Jesus Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.